Well, greetings, imagination connoisseurs. Once again, it is I. You know, I have so many names now, but of course, I am the Viceroy of Verisimilitude. I am the Master of Fun and Wonder, and of course, the Existential Mr. Rogers. And once again, I apologize for my uh, lateness, technical difficulties, problematic on the weekends. I, I guess I don't know how to use my computer. Anyway, I want to remind everybody that these chats are brought to you by Lucky Tiger Men's Grooming Products for those men who want to look good and feel great. And if you go to their website at getluckytiger.com and buy anything, when you check out and you punch in PGS for post-geek singularity, which is what you are a member of, then you get 20% off your order. Welcome. To all of you imagination connoisseurs, to this, the post-geek singularity community, you know, the greatest community on the web. We keep building it. It keeps getting bigger. More subscribers every day. I get more letters every day, more comments every day, and that's a good thing. And I'll tell you what somebody, one of the actually byproducts of, of the community that we have is when I make a mistake, and that is frequently, I get corrected. And uh, I do not want to be somebody that 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 uh, provides misinformation to you imagination connoisseurs so if i ever say anything wrong and you know i do speak extemporaneously off the top of my head so frequently i probably get things wrong and i made i'll admit it an egregious error yesterday uh everyone knows i showed my action figure if you watch yesterday's show of sylvester stallone as judge dread from the 1995 adaptation of the comic the British comic, and I said that I loved his costume because his costume was made by Jean-Pierre Gaultier. I made a mistake. Any any imagination connoisseur worth their salt knows that Jean-Paul Gaultier made the costumes for Luc Besson's seminal work, The Fifth Element. The person who made the Judge Dredd costume and armor for the judges in the 1995 film of the same name was, of course, Giannini, Vers Giannini? Giannini Versace. You know, I don't want to be one of those guys that thinks that all fashion designers from Europe are, are alike, because they're not. And I just wanted to, to correct an egregious error that I made, and I would hope that you imagination connoisseurs in your own lives, when you make those kinds of mistakes, you're not above correcting them and accepting responsibility. And I can't believe I mixed up Giannini Versace with Jean-Paul Gaultier, which I don't know if there's some people out there that are like, how could you possibly do that? But you know who I haven't messed up? You know who I haven't? Well, before I get to that, I want to talk about some, uh, I want to talk about science, some real science. Uh, first of all, a Netflix documentary series, a limited documentary series, a four-part documentary series dropped on Friday. Uh, it's got to be Willow Yang's favorite documentary series of the year. It's called Unnatural Selection. And it is, uh, it is a look at the ethical questions that have been brought up by CRISPR technology and gene driving. Gene driving within species, basically within species, genome, whatever. Gene driving is basically the idea that you can, in one fell swoop, alter an entire population of creature, depending on uh, whether you want to or not, by using CRISPR technology, changing uh, the basic genes. And you can do things like, for instance, if you want to get rid of uh, the rat population on New Zealand, which is exploding because of global warming, 
and they're devouring the indigenous birds there because the indigenous birds have no defense against the onslaught of this predator. Uh, you can use gene driving and and quickly cause the entire uh, emerging burgeoning rat population in New Zealand to become sterile. So the the, the women can the, the females of the species can no longer bear children, and by 2050 you can eradicate the problem. Of course. What are the side effects of doing something like that? We don't know because it's never been done before <laughs> that we know of. But anyway, I, it's a four-part documentary. It's absolutely fascinating. Anything to do with bioethics. Uh, again, I've talked to you about how I love I love uh, anything with diseases, and that's why I'm so excited for another adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand. But bioethics are one of my pet interests. I love reading about bioethics. One of my dream film projects is about reproductive ethics uh, and and emergent biotechnology. And I, I find the whole subject fascinating. And Elizabeth started watching this documentary series last night and I got quickly sucked in. And the four parts, they're, they're each an hour, definitely worth watching. Um, you know, it's not a lot of gotcha stuff. It's more really, really interesting. And of course, for those of you who followed the story of the child that was actually born with three from material from three parents. Um, because in, in females, the mitochondrial uh, DNA sometimes is damaged. So what happened was, and they did this in Kiev, in, in Ukraine, they basically took the genetic material from a man and a woman and a third woman, because the, 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 the mother had damaged mitochondrial DNA, so they used a third woman's mitochondrial DNA to make an egg that had genetic material from three people, and it worked. The baby is born, the baby is currently healthy, but it's amazing. And biotechnology is coming at us in, in a very, very fast and furious fashion, and we are currently very ill-equipped to deal with the moral and ethical implications. We can't even... We can't even decide on abortion, which was law decided almost 50 years ago. We're talking about uh, taking that away. But in the meantime, <laughs> they're making children with three different parents in the former Soviet Union in Ukraine. And we are still arguing whether or not we should rescind law that was decided almost 50 years ago. But it's a fascinating documentary. I would uh, suggest everybody watch it and really, really interesting. And on the same tip, on the same tip, because, of course, we call this the post-geek singularity community, I wanted to read something about the real singularity, Ray Kurzweil's singularity. This is from Sabali Malinga, uh, an IT web senior news journalist in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. This is from October 17th. And uh, the headline is, Singularity is a Decade Closer Than Predicted. Shane Mann, co-CEO of Singularity U Africa, was speaking this past week. The technological singularity, an age when machine intelligence surpasses human intelligence, is now expected to take place in 2035, 10 years earlier than initially predicted. 
This was the word from Shane Mann, co-CEO of Singularity U Africa and co-founder of the uh, experiential brand agency Man Made. Almost 2,000 attendees filed or filled the conference center at the uh, Kailami Grand Prix Circuit at the Singularity U South African Summit 2019 on the 16th. Man, who delivered the welcoming note, discussed the current exponential change in possibilities presented by technology. He explained that the singularity, a hypothetical point in the future when technological growth and machine intelligence become uncontrollable and irreversible, once predicted to take place in 2045, is now expected to take place a decade earlier and is anticipated to result in unfathomable changes to human civilization. He attributed the prediction to author Ray Kurzweil, who wrote the book titled The Singularity is Near. The singularity will, will be one of the most significant events of the human race. Once a singularity happens and we become merged with the machines, we have no idea what capabilities we will have as the human race, but we do know that the amount of change that a hundred-year-old has seen in the past century is nothing in comparison to the amount of change we will see in the next 15 years, Man pointed out. It's going to be a hell of a ride, and I suggest we buckle up, don't blink, and whatever you do, don't fall off and get left behind because there will be no holy cows. The world is moving from a world of scarcity to abundance, a life full of opportunities and possibilities for all, he noted. The age of 100 years is now known as the new 90, but in the next 15 years, a person who is 100 years old will be equated to a 70-year-old in terms of their overall well-being. In the next 15 years, almost every business will be massively disrupted, and entrepreneurs should seek opportunities where they can make a positive and meaningful impact to humanity. Quoting Greek-American engineer and physician Peter Diamandis, Diamandis, he asked, what happens when AI, robot, robotics, virtual reality, digital biology, and sensors crash into 3D printing, blockchain, quantum computing, and the global gigabit network? The billionaires of the future are the ones who will solve problems of a billion people, so don't be lulled into inaction. Also speaking at the event, uh, Leilala Paulak, co-founder and CEO of the Singularity U Nordic, discussed how businesses can create an extraordinary societal impact in a world of exponential change. In order to understand what exponential means, she highlighted the importance of understanding the difference between linear and exponential. According to Moore's law, this is an old law, computer power doubles every 18 months. Quite something when you think of what in society is powered by computers within our everyday lives. While we cannot keep underestimating the power of technology, humans are currently the smartest of all species, which means we need to spend time on the world's most important to-do list, the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. She urged technology business leaders not, be put, not, not to put profits before humans and emphasize the importance of public and private sector collaboration. We should also ask where government fits in and why we are only looking toward business leaders to lead us in solving today's biggest problems, she concluded. Well, the documentary Unnatural Selection deals with this. It deals with normal people who don't have medical degrees or PhDs and how they can start to, through CRISPR technology, which I suggest you read up on because it's very interesting, uh, CRISPR technology can actually alter their own DNA. And what does that mean for the future of mankind? 
in addition to science fiction, fantasy, and horror, people, we are living in a sci-fi world that is rapidly changing, and our ability to understand what this means and the ethical implications about where we're all going and what it's going to take to get there, it's coming at us like a freight train, and it's something that all of us need to be interested in. And I've always said, you know, if you want to get rich, you look at the confluence of biotechnology and computing technology, and somewhere in there, if you know what to look for, there's a lot to uh, a lot to be excited about. So, all very interesting. <laughs> now, if I can just take a little bit of a, a shift, boy, I'll I'll tell you. Sometimes it's hard out there for an imagination connoisseur. Sometimes uh, it's a bummer. It's it can be a bummer. And what is a bummer today is one of my heroes. Director Francis Ford Coppola, a man who I revere. I mean, definitely in my top five of all directors. I mean, Francis Coppola, if the name doesn't ring a bell right off the bat, he directed, of course, four of the great films of the 70s, Godfather 1, Godfather 2, The Conversation, and of course, Apocalypse Now. Uh, if that was all he directed, that could be, that could be a, a man could retire. But he also directed movies like Tucker, A Man in His Dream, One from the Heart, a passion project of his. He directed the two S.E. Hinton adaptations, The Outsiders, and of course, Rumblefish. Rumblefish being what I think uh, is absolutely in the top five teen films of the 80s, if not of all time. Uh, top three for me behind Risky Business, The Chocolate War, and Bringing Up the Rear of my top three favorite teen films of the 80s, definitely Rumblefish. Fish. He also made my one of my favorite John Grisham adaptations, The Rainmaker, which people don't talk enough about. I thought a great role for both Mickey Rourke and Matt Damon. Well, Francis Ford Coppola jumped into some controversy, and it's a follow-up to something I've already talked about twice, and now I'm going to talk about it a third time. Uh, Leon, uh, Francis Ford Coppola is in France. He was in Lyon, and... Uh, Francis Ford, uh, th this is an article, by the way, that comes from France 24. Coppola backs Scorsese in row over Marvel films. This was published today at 1931. I would imagine that would be, so that's, what is that, 7 o'clock, 7.30 uh, today? I mean, 7.30 in our future, but 7.30 in France today. Francis Ford Coppola jumped into it. There's no, there's, it just says Leon AFP. There's no uh, author credited here. Francis Ford Coppola jumped into a controversy over the Marvel superhero movies Saturday, not just backing fellow director. Oh, you know what? This was yesterday because today's the 20th. Sorry. France, so it's yesterday at 7.30. Francis Ford Coppola jumped into a controversy over the Marvel superhero movie Saturday, not just backing fellow director Martin Scorsese's critique of the films, but denouncing them as despicable. Come on, man. Earlier this month, Scorsese, director of classics such as Taxi Driver and Goodfellas, described the Marvel Cinematic Universe films as more theme parks than cinema, even if they were well-made. His remarks made waves across social media for days as fans of his work and the Marvel hits, such as the Avengers films, argued the merits. But Coppola, speaking to journalists in the French city of Lyon, where he has just been awarded the Prix Lumiere for his contribu uh, contribution to cinema, backed his fellow Italian-American Scorsese. Quote, when Martin Scorsese says that the Marvel pictures are not cinema, he's right 
because we expect to learn something from cinema. We expect to gain something, some enlightenment, some knowledge, some inspiration. I don't know anyone gets anything out of seeing the same movie over and over again, the 80-year-old filmmaker said. Martin was kind when he said it's not cinema. He didn't say it's despicable, which I just say it is, unquote. Coppola also said he was working on his biggest project yet, Megalopolis, a film about a utopia, a project he's nurtured for two decades. Quote, I wanted to make a film about a human expression of what really is heaven on earth. I would say it's the most ambitious film I've worked on, more than Apocalypse Now. That's the problem, he added. Apocalypse Now is 1979 war epic starring Martin Sheen and Marlon Brando is notorious for the vast amount of time and money it ate up during production. I think it would cost more than Apocalypse Now, said Coppola. It would be the biggest budget I've ever had to work with. Coppola, the director of the Godfather films, joins an illustrious list of filmmakers and actors to have received the Prix Lumiere, including Scorsese, Pedro, Pedro Almodovar, and Milos Forman. You know, <clears throat> you can't see it because it's on the wall here, but there's a giant four-foot Japanese poster of Apocalypse Now that I love because I love Apocalypse Now. I love it. I love what it represents to me uh, and to cinema, but it means a lot to me both as a story, both as a, a shining example of the best of verisimilitude in a film, but also what the art of cinema can be and specifically the art of editing. One of the movies that made me want to edit film and I look at it every day and I look at Francis Coppola's name and it, it just... It's really interesting to me to see both Martin Scorsese and Coppola, not because they're Italian, but they're two of the great American filmmakers uh, that have existed in my lifetime. And I've been able, I've been lucky enough to grow up watching their movies and, and being so not just enamored of them, but, but studying them over and over and over and over and over again. You know, just today I was flipping through YouTube and a clip popped up of both Roger Siskel and Ebert talking about when Goodfellas came out in 1990 and what it meant to them and, and what kind of a film it was. And I I, I just, I, I find it, especially I don't even know if Francis Coppola has ever watched a Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Uh, Martin Scorsese said he had not. They are basing their opinions about these movies on assumptions about what comic books are. Now, I grew up with this. I grew up with this this prejudicial, like, oh, you know, you just read comics. And I famously told, well, famously, I don't know how famous, but I've told the story about how I rediscovered comic books in the early 80s when Robbie Cullen, this younger kid than me, was reading Camelot 3000, issue number four, where he got it, I don't know, Camelot 3000, number four, on his front stoop as I was delivering papers. And I picked it up, of course, the great Brian Boland artwork, Mike Barr wrote that issue, wrote the whole series, and of course it was printed on white Baxter paper. I'd never seen a comic like this on heavy gauge white paper, not just newsprint. The colors were so vibrant, and I was reading. I just read a few pages to know, my God, comic books are not where they used to be. They've certainly evolved. And I was there throughout the 80s uh, when comic books went from you know, Kurt Swan Superman comics to where they, where they wound up. Um, everything from Ronin and American Flag and what Frank Miller did on Daredevil before Ronin, all the way through Crisis on Infinite Earths and Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and all of these things. And it's very interesting to me 
that we've got Joker still burning up the box office charts. Not number one, Maleficent is number one, but uh, still doing very, very well. Joker, inspired by Scorsese's movie, still in the in the still in the theaters. And of course, tonight on HBO, Damon Lindelof's well sequel to the actual comic book, The Watchmen, debuts on HBO. And uh, very interesting. And uh, on one hand, we have two of our greatest film directors, people that I revere, and of course, Tallulah reveres them as well, slamming, slagging off on, on comic book movies. And, and, and what I don't understand is why. You know, they're genre films. Now, after Coppola's comments, as he did after Scorsese made his comments, James Gunn jumped into the fray. James Gunn, of course, currently directing The Suicide Squad. Obviously, he directed um, he directed uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2. His written Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is going to direct that. He directed a movie called, the, or he wrote a movie called The Specials that I was a producer on um, about a, a, the world's eighth greatest superhero team. And that was directed by Craig Mazin, the creator of Chernobyl. Uh, I was an associate producer on that film. And uh, James also was in that movie playing Minute Man. So his work on superhero movies himself goes way back. But according uh, to Jeremy uh, Fuster on The Wrap, uh, after, let me read this, after Coppola's slam, James Gunn defends Marvel movies as cinema again. And this was published today at one in the afternoon. So this was published an hour before I went on. Once again, an icon of New Hollywood has panned Marvel movies. And once again, James Gunn has spoken out in defense of them. The Guardians of the Galaxy filmmaker posted an Instagram post in response to Francis Ford Coppola's comments at the Lumiere Festival in France this weekend. Coppola was asked whether he agreed with Martin Scorsese's comments that Marvel movies were not cinema, and he went even further than the Irishman director went in his criticism. Martin was kind when he says it's not cinema. He didn't say it's despicable, which I just say it is. Excuse me. When Martin Scorsese says that the Marvel pictures are not cinema, he's right because we expect to learn something from cinema. We expect to gain something, some enlightenment, some knowledge, some inspiration. I don't know that anyone gets anything out of seeing the same movie over and over again. I already read that, but I'm going to read it again. Gunn did not mention Scorsese or Coppola in his post by name, but did reference the latter's use of the word despicable when noting that superhero films aren't the first populist genre to receive derision from more artistic filmmakers. James Gunn posted this on his Instagram page, and when this article was written, they screen-capped it. It had 72,801 likes. James Gunn said, Many of our grandfathers thought all gangster movies were the same often calling them despicable. Some of our great-grandfathers thought the same of Westerns and believed the films of John Ford, Sam Peckinpah, and Sergio Leone were all exactly the same. I remember a great-uncle to whom I was raving about Star Wars. He responded by saying, I saw that when it was called 2001, and boy, was it boring. Superheroes are simply Today's gangsters, cowboys, outer space adventures. Some superhero films are awful. Some are beautiful. 
like Westerns and gangster movies, and before that, just movies, not everyone will be able to appreciate them, even some geniuses, and that's okay. Heart emoji. So, Gunn noted that his great uncle dismissed his excited reaction to Star Wars by comparing it, the iconic blockbuster film to Stanley Kubrick's far more meditative 2001 A Space Odyssey, which he called boring. Gunn is currently filming the DC film The Suicide Squad, which will be released by Warner Brothers in 2021. And after that, he's set to return to the Marvel Studios to direct Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which currently has no set release date. And then it goes on to talk about Coppola's comments. You know, I find it very interesting that especially Martin Scorsese and Francis Coppola, who began work in genre films, even uh, blue movies, so to speak, uh, do not, they've clearly never watched a, a Marvel film. And I, you know, I talked about this before, but what's really interesting is if you go back, and I don't have to tell any of you because you've all seen the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but if they just watched the first Iron Man, you know, the first Iron Man, while yes, based on a cartoon or cartoon, a comic book, or you could say it was based on some of the animation we'd seen. The first Iron Man is, is the story about a man who has a crisis of conscience, about a man who firsthand understands uh, the ravages of what he as a capitalist has been making without any thought of the consequences as to what his creations could do. And as an arms <clears throat> manufacturer and as an arms dealer, he firsthand finds out. And that is what leads him to become Iron Man. And I I can't imagine another you could have done the same, you could have done the same story, that exact same story, that it didn't have to necessarily, he doesn't make an Iron Man suit but he could have made something, some kind of benevolent technology he uses. And of course, his company wants him to continue manufacturing weapons of war to make money. And you watch a movie like Iron Man, and just because it's based on a Marvel character, and just because it has a man wearing a technologically advanced suit that allows him to fly and has repulsor rays in it, doesn't mean that it isn't a valid story of one man dealing with what he has wrought and his conscience kicking in. It's as legit a story as any. And, and remember, I, I mean, I would dare say, of course, we, we know the irony of the Joker being based on, well, Joker, not the Joker, but the Joker, the Joker being based on Scorsese's films, most notably King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. It's just odd that these men who are revered and who have made some of the greatest movies in ever made would talk about, like the Harry Potter films and like the books before them, you know, Harry Potter got younger kids reading again. It lines in front of bookstores to buy books and read. Now, somebody could say, oh, that's just, you know, wizards and none of that. It's all gobbledygook and it doesn't mean anything. Well, no. I mean, look, all genre fiction is based in classical storytelling. And it's, it's just, I don't get it. I don't understand. I mean, even what Thanos wanted to do in Infinity War, in the entire Infinity Saga, eliminating half of the sentient beings or indeed the beings in the universe in order to make the lives of the remaining people, the remaining entities, whatever you want to call them, better, that's a fascinating 
uh, philosophical concept to roll around in your head. Uh, this is not just super-powered, uh, overly exercised men and women beating the crap out of each other. The great thing about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is they're all about something, just like the great comic books are always about something. With great power comes great responsibility. That's what that's what Ben Parker told Spider-Man. And that has always defined what Spider-Man as a character does. And it's such a strange thing for me to see two men who have been proponents of genre fiction, genre motion pictures their whole lives, turn around and say this about a genre that they really know nothing about. It truly is. And I, look, what they're really saying is they do not like the fact that these Marvel movies are gobbling up so much at the box office in terms of, of money. And what they're failing to understand is it's getting people more interested in the movies. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is a gateway drug for young kids who are going to branch out and find other forms of cinema. That's certainly what I did. I liked science fiction, fantasy, and horror movies as a kid. But as I got older, I wanted more sophisticated bill of fare. And at the same time, I watched science fiction, fantasy, and horror films get more and more sophisticated. You know, a movie like Alien would not have existed until 1979, and nor did it. Yes, you know, the It, The Terror from Beyond Space, and of course, Mario Bava's seminal Planet of the Vampires, if you haven't seen. I mean, Mark Sees has been writing, Mark C, Mark Chure, a member of the, this, the post-geek singularity community, went out and got the Quatermass experiment based on me yammering away, and uh, he watched it. And 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 wrote me and he said, you know, this is like a gore film from the time it was made. It was, it was pretty shocking. And yeah, it was. And that's why John Carpenter was interviewed. And there's the interview on the Kino Lorber disc that was put out. But it's just a strange thing. I mean, I understand on one hand, the entire business of Hollywood has changed, and mid-level adult fare. Although I would say that Joker is a, a, a mid-level, even though it's based on, on obviously one of the most famous, if not the most famous, comic book villain of all time. It's still a very adult movie. I certainly wouldn't take a kid who was loving the MCU. I wouldn't take some eight-year-old kid to go see Joker. I don't think they would get much out of it. It might confuse them, and they might not enjoy it. But it's it's just it's just I don't understand. You know, genre movies. Are, have always been, they've always been pilloried by somebody. You know, like James Gunn pointed out, westerns, you know, bang, bang, shoot 'em ups, whatever, gangster movies. Everyone has always pilloried genre cinema. And then, of course, years later, Martin Scorsese will come along and host some retrospective of the gangster film. You know, or Coppola will do the same thing and extol the virtues uh, of, of these, these films. And the idea that they're slamming, I mean, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, despicable. Whatever you think of those movies, they're delightful. Uh, I think they're delightful as a middle-aged man with one foot in his grave. I love the MCU. You know, when I sat there with my friends watching Avengers, I couldn't believe what I was watching when I sat next to John Schnepp and Amy Dallin and watched Avengers Infinity War. I could, again, I, it was just another extension of seeing the Avengers the first time. I couldn't believe what I was watching. I couldn't believe that I was seeing the height of motion picture technology, bring me a, a photorealistic purple giant Thanos that his, his chin looked like a giant ball sack, and I completely believed that Thanos existed. 
And and it, it was the culmination of all motion picture technology up to the time. And I had a, a wonderful time watching the film. I felt like I was watching Jason and the Argonauts for the first time when I was six and saw that skeleton battle on TV and was filled with a sense of awe and wonder. Four years before Star Wars came out, and I was marveling to the Martian war machines from Byron Haskins' 1953 War of the Worlds. I mean, it was it was quite a time. And it just, it boggles my mind that, that Francis Coppola would use the word despicable when, when talking about the MCU, because what the MCU did is it, it got a whole new generation really excited uh, about movies again. Whole families could go to the MCU together and, and marvel over the exploits of those characters and fall in love with those characters. And what's wrong with that? What I, 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 I don't understand. You know, I, I watch, uh, my brand is, has always been, for the most part, positivity, with one exception, as everyone knows. I won't even bring it up today. But the, uh, uh, it just it boggles my mind that anybody would have anything. Look, you can say that some of the Marvel movies are hit and miss. They're not all genius motion pictures. And some people would say, oh, they're just like glorified television shows. They're all interconnected. Well, no one's ever done that before. Not like the MCU. 23 movies that all hold together as part of the Infinity Saga. You know, I threw on the 4K disc of Spider-Man Far From Home just to look at the, well, uh, the, I, I think the special features, to be honest, I put on the Blu-ray, not the 4K disc, because the special features are usually on the Blu-ray section. But I watched, I want to watch special features. I watched the first 10 minutes of the movie. And, you know, I'm just, I was delighted how that movie begins and how it deals with the five-year uh, gap, the blip, as they call it in that movie. The movie, after 10 minutes, was just delightful. It's a delightful movie. And I, I just don't understand how two of our master filmmakers would ever go off and, and I mean, Kenneth Branagh, whose first feature film was Henry V, he directed a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. And, and you know, it's just amazing to me that, that our master filmmakers would come out, people that love men that cut their teeth in genre cinema, schlock cinema, according to some people, and they would come out and say this. I think they're both wrong. Now, I understand what Scorsese is saying. You know, he's worried that we don't have room for, say, an Ingmar Bergman to come along or, or one of the, our Tarkovsky to come along. Well, I don't know if Ingmar Bergman's movies would ever be in the theaters today, but they certainly would show up streaming. I mean, who would have thought that Alfonso Cuaron's Roma would get made? It got made by Netflix. You know, there's a lot of vibrant work, a lot of really interesting work going on today. It's just that a limited view of what cinema is, just like everything else, with CRISPR technology, with computer technology, we're in a state of evolution. What's really important is the storytelling itself. Whether you're watching video games that have stories, Jedi Fallen Order, if that's what you want to watch while you're playing a video game, you can get something out of it. Um, I certainly did when I played Force Unleashed. I got involved with that character. I've talked about the first time I played Uncharted. It was the very first time I ever felt, to me, the first Uncharted was, oh my God, I feel like I'm immersed in a story. A story, even though I was playing it, the story obviously was taking me to an end, an ending that was pre-thought out, pre-scripted. And I felt between the voice acting and 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 what went on, the scenario, 
I'm like, oh my God, I'm totally invested in the characters. I'm Nathan Drake and his exploits. I was, I was invested in. Now I would not have thought that was possible. That was what, 10 years ago? But still, it was true. It changed my perception of video games. And and you know, when when games like The Last of Us come out, people are just as involved. And it's a game. Does that make it any less valid as an experience where you're getting something you're you if you are being told a story that you as a person have an emotional connection to that are caught up swept up in the grandeur of that story for any reason the story's working it's working and and to to take away someone's enjoyment now if 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 Martin Scorsese and and Coppola had if they thought that the Marvel Cinematic Universe the movies were actually bad and substandard, then they I would listen to their criticism. But that's not what they're saying. They object to the fact that these comic book movies exist at all. And that's what I don't like. I think it's, it's a dangerous precedent for our great artists who have already made a lifetime of incredible work that they would then turn around. The Marvel Cinematic Universe couldn't have existed 20 years ago. They didn't have the tools. They didn't have the audience. And this is an evolution of storytelling and motion pictures that are only possible in this day and age. You couldn't have made Thanos 20 years ago. He would have been somebody in, in uh, a man in prosthetics. But now they can use computer technology and advancements in digital technology. It was, again, pioneered back in the 80s when James Cameron was utilizing ILM to make the T-1000. Um or per, pardon me, the pseudopod in the abyss, which led to the T-1000, which led to Jurassic Park. I mean, all of the, the culmination of all the technology that Scorsese himself benefited from in The Irishman, which is ironic. And it's just, it's, 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 it's amazing to me that we live in this time, whether the, the, the computer singularity occurs, whether we're going to use CRISPR and, and, and fix our eyesight or whatever we're going to do to, to make ourselves disease resistant or aging resistant or Thanos is writ large on the big screen because of new technology. We live in a pretty exciting time. And, you know, maybe we won't have Igmar Bergman or Francis uh, or Francois Truffaut's movies, but someone's going to make movies like that. You know, Terrence Malick's tree of life, especially the new version that came out on criterion Blu-ray that's getting made. You know, there's, there's all kinds of cinema, getting made. Every weekend, there's many, many movies that are coming out that a lot of people don't get to see in the theater, but they're filling our streaming services, and there's a lot of vibrant cinema happening. And this idea that, oh, wow, it was better in the old days. What, it was better in the 1960s when the studio system was swept away by guys like Martin Scorsese and Francis Coppola, who were disruptors themselves, and, and started doing groundbreaking cinema when the director as auteur became the big thing and they, they sort of took Hollywood back for themselves? Do they forget about their own maverick days? By God, they changed Hollywood for the better. So anyway, always interesting here at uh, Rob Observations. You know, you just never know what you're going to get to talk about every day. Uh, but what do you guys want to talk about? Let's see. First of all, let's check in on the Seahawks game. The Seahawks are, of course, playing the Baltimore Ravens and the score, oop, home game, 13-10 Ravens. We're in the end of the second quarter, almost at halftime. Seahawks have the ball, first and 10 on the Baltimore 24. They've got 28 seconds. Let's see if they score. Who is here today? Well, Michael Elliott is here today. 
Michael Elliott says, just got the news. Is Ant-Man 3, 4 real? I hope so. Well, Michael Elliott, I, I've heard that. You know, a lot of websites are reporting that Ant-Man 3 is a go. You know, everything, what is it? Everything always. A lot of those sites, a lot of people that have uh, legitimate Marvel leaks. I don't see why not. By the way, in another show, Netflix, uh, Paul Rudd series, eight-part Paul Rudd series, where he basically plays himself and his clone also dropped. Another show that I saw uh, the back half of, but Elizabeth watched it. I thought it was delightful. What I saw, uh, who wouldn't want to make a third Ant-Man? Now, the Ant-Man movies might not be the most profitable of the MCU, but definitely did respectable box office. I like both movies very, very much. I love Paul Rudd as Ant-Man. Uh, I love Michael Douglas. I mean, it's uh, the whole... The Wasp, I love those movies. They're really, really good. And why shouldn't they make a third Ant-Man? Especially, you know, when um, Scott Lang was so instrumental in the Infinity Saga. So uh, bring it on. Bring it on. Um, you know, I, uh, I I just don't understand why you wouldn't do that. So I think that's great. Uh, that dude is here. That dude says, how do you feel about fans' identities being wrapped up in their fandoms? That dude, that is a great question. I, I find it really interesting that people uh, uh, take, when, when somebody has a dissenting opinion about your fandom, you take it personally. You take it as a personal attack. I don't quite understand that. I guess that's because I, I come from a different generation. But I, I wanted people to be, <laughs> I wish I could. I grew up wanting to talk about my fandom with people and nobody was interested. Now, because we live in the post-geek singularity, everyone's interested and everyone has an opinion. Uh, look, I think your personal identity should be the culmination of a myriad of different things and not just your fandom. Um, fandom is one thing and fandom is great. It should inspire you. It should make you happy. It should get you excited about the world. But to me, my fandom was always a, a sort of a, a ground zero that led me to many different things. It led me into the real world. Uh, and and uh, the soundtrack to Star Wars, I've talked about how it led me to Beethoven records that my mom had and, and a love of classical music. And, and Star Trek led me to the Twilight Zone, which led me to reading classic science fiction, which led me, led me to joining the Science Fiction Book Club, with, which gave me a love of reading in general. And, and I think that, that your fandom, no one can take your fandom away from you. Your fandom is yours. And no one can gatekeep. There's nobody that can tell you what you, what you can and can't look at. You know, uh, no one can tell me I can't love Star Crash, because I do. And uh, people would say, well, how can you rail about Star Trek Discovery and like a movie like Star Crash? Because I can. Because I'm me. <laughs> and it doesn't mean I'm right or wrong. And what I have to say should not affect your fandom at all. That's why there's no such thing as gatekeepers in fandom. No one can take away your ability to enjoy whatever it is you want to enjoy. But I do think it's unfortunate that people lose the ability to to think in a cogent manner about their their own fandom when they get too wrapped up in it they they identify too closely with their fandom they feel if somebody wants to debate the merits of their favorite movie they take it as a personal attack it's weird to me i'm like how does that affect you i mean what it should really do like like here's here's the thing whatever belief system you have whether it's 
fan-based or whether it's religious-based or science-based or whatever, your belief system should stand up to scrutiny. And when people challenge your beliefs, you should step up to that challenge and really think about why you believe what you believe and, and, and try and be able to quantify it, not just to yourself, but to someone else. Think of it as an exercise. They can't take your beliefs away from you, but a person's belief system should constantly be evolving. I once heard the idea that you should never think that you know something, you should never know, that you know everything about a subject. Because if you feel that you know everything about a subject, then you stop thinking about that subject and your belief system should constantly be evolving and growing with more information. We're getting more information every single day. I mean, what was really uh, interesting about this documentary series, A Natural Selection, is as you're watching it, like any great documentary series does, you're thinking about how do you personally feel about the moral and ethical implications about what this documentary series is presenting. So as you watch the four hours of this show, you are going to be questioning your own beliefs during the entire time that this documentary series runs. And that's pretty dope. That's pretty exciting. And it's a good thing. So if somebody wants to tell me, like, like my friend Dave Hargrove really liked Midsummer, Ari Aster's Midsummer. I, I, I didn't like it nearly as much as him. By the way, it's Dave Hargrove's birthday today. He's my oldest friend in LA. Happy birthday, Dave. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, I, I, there's no reason like, so Dave and I went out, we, we know each other very well. We can talk forever. Elizabeth suggested even Dave and I have a movie review show like Siskel and Ebert. Uh, that could be kind of interesting. Uh, his name is Hargrove, but I'd have to use it like hard, like Hardgrove. I'd have, I don't know. I'll come up with a, maybe that'll be a fun show, like on the Burnett work, doing a, a Siskel and Ebert type show with Dave, just because, uh, I think people would love to hate Dave just like I love to love Dave. And there are people that think I'm a douchebag, so we could balance each other out, out. So that's pretty good. Anyway, Willow Yang says, they did try using CRISPR to sterilize male mosquitoes and release them into Brazil to control the wild population. It didn't work. Life finds a way. Well, Willow Yang, they spent a lot of time in this documentary series talking about how they were going to use CRISPR to sterilize mosquitoes to stop malaria in Africa. And they're still, they just got approval to check that out. Michael Elliott says, Heart of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, which is about the making of Apocalypse Now, is a phenomenal documentary. It is, Michael Elliott. And for those of you who don't know, because you perhaps haven't been here or are under a rock, uh, three Apocalypse Now came out on 4K disc, a beautiful, very, very, I mean, probably the best money you'll spend all year if you have a 4K disc player and a 4K TV. Three cuts of Apocalypse Now, the theatrical cut, the uh, Redux cut, and Coppola's final cut, including the Hearts of Darkness documentary, and it's like 25 bucks, less than that. It's the best value of the year. Amazing, amazing. Um, but you are correct, Michael Elliott. A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, Hearts of Darkness is one of the great documentaries ever made about making movies. Timula the Spider Monkey says, by the way, just say at halftime, the Seahawks did tie up the, the game. Baltimore and the Seahawks are tied 13-13 at the half. Timula the Spider Monkey says, I sent you a letter about Scorsese's MCU comments a few days ago. Seems like everyone is doubling down on those comments now without thinking about why those films made so much money. People want them. 
Well, Tim, Tim, by the way, is in Australia. Uh, of course, the land that Lex Luthor wanted to be given in Star Trek, Star Trek, in Superman 2. I don't know. What would he have, what would he have done with Australia? But anyway, uh, yes, the MCU are lovely, delightful movies. I thoroughly enjoy them. I mean, you can't tell me that movies like Winter Soldier and Civil War, those two films in particular, aren't full of questions about the moral and ethical implications about the use of information technology, the use of governmental power and oversight and differences of opinion that people have. I mean, just like the Civil War comic, whose side are you on? Do you believe, are, we, are you Team Rogers or Team Stark? And you can have long debates, many gin-soaked or whiskey-soaked debates at the bar or at a convention about what goes on in those movies. And so to say that they have no value is really sort of silly. They're they are wonderfully made genre films. They are four-quadrant films. They are family films for the most part. And uh, you get a lot of bang for your buck. And I can't think... Uh, uh, if you can show me movies such as in the two-part punch, the, the gut punch of both Infinity War and Endgame, show me two more wildly entertaining movies than that, that offer, you know, I would dare say as far as fantasy cinema goes, Infinity War and Endgame, and I understand they, 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 they don't exist without the rest of the MCU, but I would say that along with Lord of the Rings, Infinity War and Endgame are two of the most satisfying fantasy experiences you can ever have at the movies. I think Lord of the Rings is probably, and there's look, there's a lot of people that can't even get past watching Lord of the Rings because they can't deal with the wigs, they can't deal with the makeup, they can't deal with a lot of it, and they'll just tune out. I understand. I remember, I think, a lot of people from my drama club in high school, easily the most pretentious kids in my high school. And I, I was in newspaper class with a lot of them. We wrote for the high school newspaper. Delightful people, but man, were they pretentious. I don't think they could have ever gotten through the Lord of the Rings movies. But they're, I mean, what if you're into that kind of thing, if you're an imagination connoisseur, come on. Those extended versions, I, amazing. And Infinity War and Endgame, same thing. Very, very, very satisfying. Vegetable Tube is here. Uh, Vegetable Tube says, are Spielberg, Scorsese, Coppola, and... Aniston forming a sinister six. Look, I understand what everybody's saying. You know, Jennifer Aniston's worried she's not going to get it when Harry met Sally. I, I get that. But what's what what's so funny to me is you know, look at look at movies like Always Be My Maybe. I mean, we're getting romantic comedies, we're getting all of these movies, we're getting them, whether they're on streaming services, whether they're in theaters. I mean, you know. While it wasn't necessarily my first choice, I keep going back to Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. What a delightful movie that is. Lady Bird is a delightful movie. And I learned how to pronounce Saoirse Ronan because of that film, because I, I, I love Saoirse Ronan. She was great in that movie. You'd never know she's Irish. Not that it matters, even though I probably have a sneaking suspicion that I've never been to Ireland, but I think Ireland's probably the greatest country on earth. But you never know. Uh, but I, I I think that you look at a movie like that, that was in theaters. I haven't seen Booksmart yet, but look at that movie. Um, you know, it it I mean, I don't own it. Um, uh, it, it there's wonderful movies being made. Uh, and and to say that there that there aren't is silly. I mean, Aniston's own the morning show with Steve Carell, her new series on Apple Plus, which debuts on November first. Who would have thought, man? 
Who would have who would have thought uh, that somebody would make that TV series? It looks great. You know, and and it's amazing to me that the Marvel Cinematic Universe works as well as it works, and it's it's crazy. I mean, there were people that don't like Indiana Jones probably back in the day, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Why'd you make that movie, Steve? I mean, E.T. gets pilloried today, which is ridiculous because again, one of the great fantasy movies of all time. Crazy. Uh, John Suntress is here from the Word Balloon Podcast. For those of you who have never heard the Word Balloon Podcast, you should listen to it. John is a great interviewer. He always has a rollicking conversation with people about pop culture and comic books. And uh, Word Balloon, uh, John says, Bendis says the MCU films have made secret ids, uh, secret ids? A, pas a passe trope. In a New York Times article posted Friday, Bendis announced super, oh, oh, uh, I, secret id, secret identities. Bendis says the Marvel Cinematic Universe has made secret identities a passe trope. In a New York Times article posted Friday, Bendis announced Superman 18 will reveal his secret identity. Your thoughts? Well, famously in the Civil War comic book, um, Peter Parker reveals his identity. The reason, look, the reason that superheroes there's a practical reason why superheroes would keep their identities secret to protect their families. If there are super if Craven the Hunter comes to New York gunning for you, it's probably best that Craven the Hunter does not know Peter Parker is Spider-Man, otherwise May Parker might wind up on the wrong end of a bullet. Same is true what if somebody comes in and decides to do a mass shooting at the offices of the Daily Planet because they know that Clark Kent works there. I think in Superman's case, having a human identity is very important to the character. Now, I get it. I understand. I'm I'm now going to take responsibility. I mean, I, this is a, a again. It's it's it, it's funny that I always we see all the time that these creators now they want to embrace. I was talking about this on the Midnight's Edge podcast last night. We were talking about the fact that no longer are classical heroes. Um, uh, desirable that now everybody wants like we talked about the fact that writers want to write their own insecurities into characters like nobody knows how to write and I'll use Star Trek as an example the idea that's look and I'm going to say what I was saying last night on the Midnight's Edge podcast the character of Spock is the uber Vulcan he is a badass he had to work twice as hard because his own people looked at him as a half-breed he is the perfect Vulcan. He understands, while he under, he doesn't not get humor. He gets humor, but his his adherence to the teachings of Surak cause him to, he's not a jokester, but he gets it. Spock is the ultimate badass. He did not arrive on the Enterprise half-formed. His time on the he look, he went through the he, he grew up on Vulcan, he went through Starfleet Academy, he was an ensign on different ships. And the idea now, this weird idea that the writers of Star Trek want to bring down these characters a peg. The characters in Star Trek are the elite of the elite. They're all Green Berets, they're the best of the best. They're SEAL Team Six. I mean, these guys and the men and women and aliens that make up the Federation, the, the crews on Starfleet vessels are the best of the best. They're not on the spectrum. They're not people that are sort of introverted. I understand Barkley. You can, I, I get it. 
But these are people that are working at the very highest levels. And now it's become, uh, this is this is our society doesn't want to believe. We want every kid to get a trophy now because we don't want anyone to feel bad. Well, listen, you know what? If you have somebody that's not up to the task, that's only 85% or 90% and they're allowed to be on a starship, the 10% they lack is going to cause the doomsday machine to destroy their ship. They're not going to survive uh, conflict or, or contact with the uh, uh, immunity syndrome 11,000 mile long space amoeba. These people are the best of the best. And it is weird to me that we have this, this idea now that, oh, we have to make these people more relatable. We can't make them so perfect. No, you can. It's just harder to write those stories now because people are afraid. Everybody wants to, we, we live in a time where elitism is somehow looked upon as being uh, bad. Like, oh, let's, 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 give here, let's give our heroes feats of clay. Well, that's easy to do because we know what that's like. What we are, uh, what we fail to to know, what we fail to realize nowadays, is what does it mean to be an elite member of these things? What does it mean to be the best of the best? What does it mean when not every kid gets a trophy because not every kid's good enough to get one? And that's okay. They just don't get to be on Federation starships. That's the way world works, man. You know, if you weren't fast enough on the African Velt, you got eaten. No one's going to be like, oh, it's okay if you can't you, you can't run this fast. It doesn't matter. No, you're going to die. And and uh, you don't, why does Spock have to be a character that, oh, we're going to watch Rebecca Romaine as number one, teach him lessons when he gets onto the starship. No, man, he's way ahead of her. And 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 the, they fixate on, on production discontinuities with Spock smiling on the cage. I mean, why they fixate on the cage, which was, lest, lest we forget, the unused pilot. It's almost like, as somebody pointed out, maybe it was Rob last night on, on Midnight's Edge, pointed out that the reason they've gone, gone back to the cage is when you watch a streaming service and you watch Star Trek, the first episode that pops up is the cage. And if you don't know your Star Trek history, you don't know that the cage with certain material cut out was later repurposed as the menagerie. You should not watch the cage on its own and think about that as being representative of Star Trek because it is not. It is not canonical Star Trek, if that makes sense. Only the Menagerie's version of the cage is canonical Star Trek. Anyway, uh, it's just weird. The same is true of James Bond. Let's 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 make a movie like Skyfall where James Bond continually fails throughout the entire movie. Why do you do that? It's okay if you've missed a step. James Bond doesn't miss a step. We need people like James Bond. James Bond is not a misogynist. He's not. He's a man that is living every moment as if it could be his last, as was pointed out to me yesterday in the book Moonraker. Ian Fleming comments, Bond is commenting, he's thinking to himself that he never expected to ever live past 45. So he takes his sensual pleasures, whether they be vodka martinis, whether it's beluga caviar, whether it's uh, um, uh, uh, the, the best cheese or the most beautiful women. He has sensual appetites as a human being because he knows his life can end at any moment. He doesn't dislike women. He loves women, but he wants to, you know, pleasure himself with, with other people because, or food or drink or whatever, because he knows he could die at any moment because he is the best of the best. And without James Bond, Carl Stromberg would have nuked 
uh, the world with Russian and American nukes and lived happily ever after in his underwater city where Hugo Drax would have sent his Orchidae Negro, the, 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 the horrible orchids with the poison gas that he was going to launch from his space platform and he would have wiped out everybody out on Earth. But no, it's James Bond was that much of a badass and saved all of humanity. I don't know what any of that means or where I'm going with any of that, but hey, that's where I went. Um, so let's see now. Uh, I got letters, people. I've got letters. This first letter comes from Tom Blair. Dear Rob, first off, I would like to sincerely thank you for reading my letter in Rob Observations live chat number 247 with special gratitude for your movie suggestions, which I shall take to heart. I'm sincerely grateful for your live chats and YouTube channel, which has expeditiously become my favorite YouTube channel, bar none. That's very nice of you to say. Thank you. Each day, I eagerly await to your next video in a sea of pop culture pundits and cinema savants vying for the attention of imagination connoisseurs and grindhouse aficionados. Your unique channel stands head and shoulders above the rest. Your experience in and around the film industry and eloquence in expressing yourself truly offers a unique perspective that very few, if any, other individuals on YouTube can hope to match on their best day. Oftentimes, while either at work or in my leisure time engaged in various hobbies, I also like to build models and especially Constitution-class starships. I love to throw on my Bluetooth headphones and listen to you converse philosophically and provide thoughtful commentary about the latest sci-fi news or many of my favorite genre films and series, and better yet, movies I have not heard of uh, or had forgotten hours on end. Well, let me just tell you, Tom, uh, I have PayPal'd you the money that I said I would send you by writing this, so I thank you very much. No, I'm just kidding. I do not want to make light of what you're saying. That is very nice. Um, that is very nice of you to, to say. But I would also like to point out that part of the reason I can sit here and do this is because of all of you people, you imagination connoisseurs, who write in letters like this. I don't even know what the rest of this letter is about, but um, it's so great that I watch people not just talk to me, but talk to each other. And, you know, we have this commentary. E even I, like, as I was watching, as I was watching Unnatural Selection on Netflix, I'm thinking, I wonder what Willow Yang thinks of this. I mean, there's people in this community, uh, you know, I'll watch uh, Basic Instinct or something, or I look up at Catherine Tremell and I'm like, what, what's Vesna thinking about today? You know, or or Mark C, like like Mark C is going to chime in on a comic book. Uh, uh, what does Mark C think of X Men number one, Hickman's X Men one that came out this week? I don't know, but I mean, I think about you guys and uh, Joseph. Like, what's Joseph drawing? I don't know. I, I mean, I'm now thinking about you guys, and it's it's nice to hear that. I I appreciate that. So thank you. Uh, if I may. I would also like to offer some feedback on last month's observations, number 219, your breakaway day commentary you provided about Space 1999 in honor of the faithful day of September 13th, 1999. Also, I hope you forgive the comparisons I'm about to make between Star Trek and Space 1999, but I think you will understand. Hey, you don't have to apologize to me for making these comparisons. As a young child in the late 1970s and early 1980s, I remember watching Space 1999 with my mom, who was an imagination connoisseur of considerable renown. She introduced me to the wonderful world of science fiction, and I owe my appreciation of genre cinema to her. In fact, during the early viewings of Space 1999, I may have even caught a few episodes in first run, though I was very young at the time, and I did not understand much of the show. 
My mom is no longer with us in body, but every time I see shows like Star Trek, the original series, Star Trek, the next generation, Buck Rogers or Stargate SG-1 and many others, I watch them with a smile on my face and I think of her. I can now happily add Space 1999 to that long list in no small part due to you, Rob. Until recently, I had not seen the show since the early 1980s, save for a couple of episodes here and there quite a few years ago as a younger adult in my late teens and early 20s. When I saw those episodes, it was in the 1990s. This was around the time when Star Trek The Next Generation had recently wrapped, and the Star Trek TNG movies and DS9 and Voyager shows were in full swing, and Stargate SG-1 was in its first few seasons. By comparison, and at the stage of my life, Space 1999 looked dated, and it showcased pacing issues many 1970s movies and films had compared to more recent examples. And it was difficult for me to accept the improbable physics of the moon being ripped from Earth's orbit and sent hurtling through the cosmos. Therefore, much of the nuance of that show was lost on me at the time. I missed out on delving into the stories at hand. In short, at that time of my life, I had no interest in the show and held that belief for many years. That is, until last month. Rob, thanks to your video highlighting Space 1999 last month and oddly Star Trek Discovery, I decided to give Space 1999 another try. In fact, I just completed watching the entire series of Space 1999 a few days ago, and I credit you with piquing my interest based on Rob's observations 219 as you had discussed some of the show's best episodes as well as other great classic sci-fi. By the way, it was also that video that prompted me to start re-watching other classic sci-fi and compile a playlist of sorts, which I wrote to you about in my last letter. See, I love letters like this. This is, this, this is the best. If I can get people to watch things they haven't watched or haven't watched in a long time, my job is done. And yes, you read that right. Star Trek Discovery gets some credit for renewing my interest in Space 1999 too. You see, in a strange way, because of the fact that I found Star Trek Discovery in its ridiculousness, lack of plausibility, and hard-to-reconcile extrapolations upon mushroom drives caused me to look at Space 1999 in another light and reevaluate its verisimilitude. For example, I found it far easier to accept the moon being <laughs> ripped from Earth's orbit by a nuclear explosion and being caught in an unknown space anomaly than fungus and a Sasquatch-like tardigrade producing warp speeds and beyond. <laughs> and I'm glad I gave this show a second chance. While I did not remember most of those episodes very well, if at all, my renewed sense of appreciation and nostalgia for 70s sci-fi and the fact that I am now more mature and now have different tastes and preferences that I didn't have 20 plus years ago overcame any pacing issues or dated FX Space 1999 had. As for the physics of Space 1999, I was also more forgiving this time around because the way physics were presented in, 19, in the 1970s was a bit less sophisticated than they were during other sci-fi shows that came later, especially the Berman era of Star Trek. Not to mention the characters in Space 1999 make it plain that they don't fully comprehend what's happening either. <laughs> and even suggest there is some guiding celestial hand at work, which is something you forget if you've only had a memory of the TV show, because how the hell could the moon get anywhere 
much less another planet if there wasn't some strange guiding hand who is basically taking it and moving it around the cosmos like we move around uh, balls on a pool table. However, despite these challenges, the stories and the character development of Space 1999 remain solid and relevant to this day. I won't go into too much detail about some of the episodes that stood out to me, but episodes like Death's Other Dominion reminded me of the original series Omega Glory or Star Trek Insurrection, and that is a tale of finding a fountain of youth of sorts. However, this episode's shocking ending, ending truly blindsided me, and for a TV series from the 1970s, it is amazing that such a disturbing ending was even aired unaltered. Voyager's Return echoes Star Trek, the original series, The Changeling, and almost foreshadows Star Trek, the motion picture. Everyone's favorite, including mine, Dragon's Domain, is often cited as Space 1999's best episode and possibly its most terrifying. In fact, re-watching that episode awoke a memory I had of that screeching Lovecraftian space monster, which I now remember terrified me as a child. The Bringers of Wonder 1 and 2 for me is all parts 1 and 2 is also a great episode where the viewer at first questions the sanity of John Koenig. Devil's Planet to me seems almost a throwback to the original Flash Gordon serials of the 1950s or 1960s B-movie sci-fi where a planet controlled by Amazonian-like women capture and later try to hunt down Koenig after he escapes. As for the characters, John Koenig is often cited by some fans as a hothead. However, Koenig seems to me to be a realistic portrayal of a man who is catapulted into an impossible situation and has greatness and the burden of leadership thrust upon him. Essentially, Koenig is not the polished Starfleet captain we see in Star Trek, but rather a man who is basically an administrator of a waste management facility that just happens to be on the moon. And yet he goes from being an administrative bureaucrat to a strong, capable leader, which I found believable. While there are times he does seem to snap at his crew or lets the pressure of the crisis at hand get the better of him for a moment, his leadership never wavers, and the tension itself lends itself to uh, and the te- and that tension lends itself to further Koenig's credibility and realism as a character. Helena Russell, to me at least, seems a forerunner of Dr. Beverly Crusher. Portrayed by the beautiful Barbara Bain, she superbly balanced her femininity with being a strong, intelligent leading woman with a command presence in her own right. While Barbara Brain and Martin Landau were married at the time of the series, the first season always hinted at the unspoken, unrequited love between the two, which is not unlike Picard and Crusher. Despite that, one would likely not suspect that the suspect that the two were real-life spouses. Season two, which seems to take place some time after season one, it was hard to determine exactly how long, as the day count seemed to always vary between episodes, much like the star dates in Star Trek, the original series. Russell and Koenig had, by that point, acknowledged their feelings for one another, started a relationship, and we get to see that relationship blossom throughout season two. It was actually a sweet and romantic progression, not unlike Riker and Troy. Maya, who doesn't love Maya? Mischievous, sexy, intelligent, and basically Mr. Spock, Odo, and Jidzia Dax all rolled into one. While I was sad to see that Barry Morris's Victor Bergman did not return for season two and was replaced in much the same fashion as Kess from Star Trek Voyager, was replaced by Seven of Nine, Maya was a worthy successor for Victor, though I would love to have seen both in the show at the same time. I could go on and on and on about the many delightful scenes of the show and the characters I grew to fall in love with again, but I will bring this letter to a close. Before I do, I would like to say that anyone who considers themselves an imagination connoisseur who is debating on giving Space 1999 a try or a rewatch to go ahead and give it a few episodes, even if, if it's just the episodes I mentioned above. 
you just may surprise yourself and find yourself wanting to see the rest. Be warned and savor what there is, however, because there's only two seasons. While I really enjoyed revisiting Space 1999, when it was over, I found myself a little sad that is all we have and will have of the original Space 1999. Perhaps someday someone will reimagine the show in some form, but it just won't be the same and will lack the charm and the nuance of 70s sci-fi. And for that reason alone, maybe Space 1999 should never be reimagined. In closing, Rob, I appreciate you for starting this community of yours. It's this, uh, let me just interject, it's a community of ours. You guys are making this community. As I said, I, I just... I just found the venue and opened the door, but it's you guys who are making the community. Thank you so much for all that you do, and please keep the peace de resistance that is Rob observations forthcoming. Sincerely, Tom Blair. Well, Tom, first of all, what a delightful letter to get. Um, uh, this uh, puts a big smile on my face, and I really appreciate it. But most of all, I love hearing from people that might like, I just spew stuff that I've liked my whole life. Like, I don't come on these shows and go, you know what? I'm going to drop a mention of, unless. On Breakaway Day, September 13th, 1999, it was the 20th anniversary of, of Breakaway Day. And, you know, uh, that reminds me, uh, I've shown this before, but since you're talking about Space 1999, um, <laughs> 1612, they did make one of 300, uh, and, I'll, and I'll just show it because I love this. Um, this is, of course, one of the greatest science fiction uh, uh ships ever the eagle transporter from space 1999 and this particular version is signed by eagle creator brian johnson this quickly goes to uh become one of my most prized possessions i love it so much and it goes into its slipcase box where it belongs so yes um I've always loved Space 1999, but I will say this. For those of you who haven't, you can see the first episode of Space 1999, Breakaway, uh, is on YouTube. You can watch it for free because Shout Factory put it on. And what's really interesting about Space 1999, for those of you who don't know, Space 1999 is about Moonbase Alpha and its crew, about 300, 350 people or something. It's a moon base. And it is a, it is a moon base, but it's also administering. They're putting all the nuclear waste from the Earth. And one day, something goes wrong, and the nuclear waste on the other side of the moon blows up. Uh, it pushes the moon out of Earth's orbit, and the moon is drifting aimlessly through space. Now, normally, if this were to happen, if it was... It, I mean, the physics are not great, as Tom pointed out. But if it were to happen, it would take decades for the moon to, to get out of our solar system, if it ever could. And it would never be able to get to another planet in the lifespan of anybody involved. But... What you don't realize in the in the course of the first season, they do talk about a strange, like maybe the the moon is being moved by some unseen. They don't say God, but they allude to it. And um, um, the Testament of Arcadia, which is the last episode of the first season of of Space nineteen ninety nine, really gets into that. And there's other really weird episodes, like the Guardian of Piri, which actually Catherine Shell, who later went on to play Maya who's in the James Bond movie on her matches to secret service. Uh, it's a really, there's a lot of weird surrealism in there. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff. The guardian of period, the mission of the Darians that has Joan Collins in it. Space 1999 is definitely worth a watch. And yes, the pacing issues are there like Tom mentions, but if you haven't seen it, really interesting show. 
Unfortunately, the second season, they brought over producer Fred Freiberger, who was known for destroying the third episode of the original Star Trek, to produce the show, and they made it much more kid-friendly, which bummed me out. But the Eagle Transporter is still one of the coolest spaceships of all time. And um, the original Millennium Falcon, for all of you Star Wars fans, was not, uh, they did not go forward with the design because it was so reminiscent of the Eagle Transporter. So it became the Millennium Falcon that we know and we love today. So thanks for writing that in. That that you you that letter makes my day. Makes my day. Um, Stubble McShave says, I can see on your face that you're trying to emulate me. That's understandable and logical since I'm great, but you can never be another stubble. Yeah, you know. Uh, I, I just started, I don't know why, I just started uh, growing this the Santa Claus beard. Maybe I'll just keep doing it all the way to Christmas and I can be like, you know, Kris Kringle. I'll try and work out and be like this, the 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 six-pack Kris Kringle. Should I do that? Um, but I'm not, you know what, Stubble Meshave? I could never be you. I could only succeed you. That's what Valeris said in, to Spock in Star Trek VI, right? So excited, says, can we just call it what it is? These old heads, including Foster, Aniston, Ridley, they're mad that the MCU is so big and their movies are relegated to streaming. Well, so excited. I, I think there's probably a an element of that, definitely. You know, Coppola is 80 years old. He wants to make this, this movie about his utopia that he's wanted to make for a long time, and he can't get it funded. And Scorsese, obviously, he's there's an article that is dropped online. You can look it up really interesting about how he couldn't get the Irishman funded and the only person, the only person, the only people, the only place, the only venue that would step up to finance the Irishman was in fact Netflix. And that uh, probably is frustrating. The fact that the Irishman is going to get a three-week theatrical berth is good. But my friend Dan Schweiger is like, hey man, I'm not going to go out to, I ain't going to go see the Irishman in a theater. I, I'm not going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it for free. Why would I go see in a theater? Well, Dan's got a point, but I, I want to see The Irishman in the theater writ large on the big screen because it's Martin Scorsese and it's going to be incredibly cinematic and I really want to see it. So why wouldn't you? But I get that. I think that's a very real frustration. These men have spent their lives making movies and then to know, and they're both considered masters, two of the best directors that the medium has ever seen. And later in their lives, it's like their power. I mean, look, of course... Youth without youth, and what no, I want to, I keep saying Tiesto, it's Tetro, I think. Uh, Tiesto, the DJ. But Coppola's last couple of movies aren't exactly the most bankable films in the world. Uh, Scorsese is still very vibrant and bankable, of course, um, even though he makes movies like The Silence. We're better off that he has. But I mean, I get it. I get it. These guys who are considered mainstays of American cinema, if not cornerstones and legends of American cinema, can't get their movies in the cinemas anymore. You know, I mean, Clint Eastwood gets to make a movie a year. Woody Allen used to get to make a movie a year. And and Scorsese and Coppola can't. Of course, of course, you know, the world has changed. The MCU is a bankable. Who's If you were to say, yeah, well, I'm going to make a three and a half hour movie about, uh, about a man, you know, a, a trigger man for the mob, and it's going to have Jimmy Hoffa in it and all that. It's not exactly the bill of fare that if you're 18, you know, and you're watching... Uh, Jeffrey Star and Shane, <laughs> the beautiful world of Jeffrey Star. If that's your favorite thing to watch on YouTube, if you're going to be watching that, you're not exactly going to talk about how you're going to run out and watch The Irishman. 
I mean, I get it. We just live in a different world. We just live in a different world. And um, we've got to accept that. And Martin Scorsese should be like, heck yeah, Netflix gave me $165 million or whatever. I pioneered de-aging technology that has been, of course, getting better through a lot of the Marvel movies, let's face it. And he got to make his movie. Coppola, you know, it'll be ironic is if Netflix comes along and finances it. You know, it's, it's not like Kevin Feige is going to turn around and say to Alan Horn or say to Bob Iger, you know, Disney should come on in and finance Coppola's new movie and we should put it out in theaters. Although that would be really cool the way Coppola and, and uh, Lucas and they brought movies like Kurosawa's Kagamusha to America. You never know. Um, Travis Rayner says, do you think George Romero gets enough credit for creating movies with social commentary and also creating the structure to zombie movies? Look, first of all, Travis, George Romero is one of my favorite filmmakers, my favorite directors. I absolutely think he does. I don't think there's anybody. I don't think, look, Robert Kirkman, the whole Walking Dead right out of Romero's universe. And, and anybody who's been following zombie movies, all everybody knows Romero's the grandfather of the modern zombie film. It's not to say there weren't zombie movies all the way back to like White Zombie, Tan uh, Tan Makut, the Haitian zombies. I mean, all of that. Those things were around. But George Romero, like Stephen King, I think what George Romero did for movies, Stephen King did for horror literature. Now, there's a lot of interesting things going on. I mean, you could say that, you know, Rosemary's Baby took the idea of a witch's coven and, and put it in contemporary upscale New York. But George Romero with Night of the Living Dead and later with Dawn of the Dead, um, the whole idea of, of zombies, he made it believable, you know, totally, to totally palatable to, to modern audiences. And he made it believable because he used the zombie outbreak as a way to examine society. I, I, I mean, it was no accident that even though he said he wasn't trying to make some commentary on civil rights, he cast the, uh, the what is it, Dwayne Jones? He cast the best actor available to star in Night of the Living Dead, and that actor just happened to be black. But by doing that, I mean, he, whatever he said, I, I, I can't, I can't, he, he obviously, once he was making the movie, if he didn't know it then, he knew it when he was in the edit bay. And I, I think Romero has absolutely been given his due. I, I, he's never forgotten. Uh, uh, people talk about him all the time. And uh, I think he does. He is given his due. And he certainly has throughout my lifetime. I, I got to meet him once. Actually, I got to meet him twice. I even have, um, I have a press kit. I'll tell you, okay, I'll, I'll tell you a story. My uncle, my uncle Jerry, for my bar mitzvah, gave me a brand new 16 millimeter print of Night of the Living Dead. And it took a while to get, but by that time I, I had a copy of Night of the Living Dead on VHS that was released by, I think it was Mita before it was media, Charles Band's Mita that became Media Home Entertainment. And he was bummed out. My uncle was bummed out. I had Night of the Living Dead. So he got me a 16 millimeter print of Martin when I was 13 and, and he got it directly from George Romero and George Romero sent me, I got the press kit for night of the living dead first. And he Romero, I hadn't met him at the time, but he did give me a press kit and signed one of the, he sent me the uh, photos, the promotional photos from, from night of the living dead, which I have. And it says, Bobby stay scared, George Romero, which I thought was the coolest thing ever. But anyway, that's just an aside. I think Romero does get 
the credit uh, he deserves. I mean, I, I, I really think, I do, I think that he does. I think that he does. And I think his work will continue on. It will echo throughout, through eternity. <laughs> it will echo throughout eternity. Uh, Tiberius Monk 84 says, hello, Robert, as a Star Trek enthusiast, have you heard and played Star Trek online? What are your thoughts? Live verisimilitude and prosper. I played Star Trek online when it first started and I keep up with Star Trek online. I haven't played it in a long time because I would get sucked into it, but I really like their storylines about how their, <clears throat> their post sort of Dominion War continuity. I really like what they've done. I like their ship designs. I'm always looking into that. And I think they've done a really a, a good job. Although somebody was writing in even yesterday saying they can't reconcile Star Trek Discovery. And I'm, I'm like, well, there you go. If the people that are doing a, such a wonderful job carrying the Star Trek flame as the people at Star Trek Online are doing, and if they can't reconcile Star Trek Discovery, what hope is it for the rest of us? Um, uh, Garen Gillum says, you can watch all Space 1999 episodes for free at Shout Factory's site. Oh, that's good to know. Shout Factory recently put out uh, Space 1999 on Blu-ray, the whole series, both seasons. By the way, <clears throat> the I have the, the British, the network, the original release of both seasons of Space 1999 on Blu-ray. The Blu-rays are stunning. Those ITC series, whether it's The Prisoner, whether it's, I have the, the original Thunderbirds, which I bought from Japan. I bought UFO and the Thunderbirds from the Blu-ray sets from Japan. But all of those, the ITC stuff and the Jerry Anderson stuff, they're amazing. The Blu-rays, the Blu-rays for Space 1999 are absolutely stunning. And you know what? The model work, Brian Johnson's VFX, the model work for Space 1999 is, it's still, I mean, you, you can tell it's models, but it still holds up. The spaceship designs, like in Dragon's Domain, when they find the spaceship graveyard, all those spaceships, everything is very cool. Mission of the Darians, that spaceship, oh, it's great. But I didn't know that they were all available. Uh, Anthony Gonzalez says, did you like the Enterprise's pilot episode, Broken Bow? Did I like Broken Bow, Anthony? You know what? I have to say I did not. <laughs> I, I, I the idea of Klingons crashing on Earth, being able to fly to the Klingon homeworld in a couple of days in a warp five ship. I, I thought I thought Broken Bow, while entertaining, it 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 seemed to me to be a dumbed down version of Star Trek. I mean, I like the cast, I like what they were trying to do. And it's handsomely mounted. It's very well directed, but I I I thought everything that's problematic about um, Brandon Braga and Rick Berman's writing, which I think plagued Star Trek Enterprise, is is uh, on display in Broken Bow. There's some things to like, but it it drove me up a wall. I mean, it it really drove me up a wall. Uh, I wanted to see more of a West Wing esque pilot episode, and that's I got more pulp sci fi and less uh, upscale intelligent Star Trek. If that means, if that makes any sense. Anthony Gonzalez also says, after watching Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and its Dominion War, the Romulan vessel, the Scimitar, had no verisimilitude for me in Nemesis. I didn't believe it, nor did I. Uh, the Scimitar is, is again, um, Stuart Baird, 
the the great 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 film editor who who directed two movies. He directed Executive Decision with Kurt Russell, which I quite like actually, and uh, uh, Steven Seagal in a, in a secondary role. And and kudos to him. If you hate Steven Seagal for what he's become, but you gotta love him for taking the, the role he took in um, in Executive Decision. Stuart Baird, another person who was not a Star Trek fan, because he fixed. I think it was Tomb Raider two. He fixed in the edit bay. Paramount owed him a directing movie, and they gave him. They basically gave him Star Trek Nemesis, and I don't know. I mean, I've heard both from Rick Berman himself and many of the cast right out of their own mouths how he it was not it was not the the most fun they ever had working on Star Trek, working on Star Trek Nemesis, and I think it's really unfortunate. And I think the the what's really funny the Valdor. Who the the other ship the, the other Romulan ship they had was was I thought a great looking ship. Um, I thought it was great, and the the scimitar was just first of all why was it called the scimitar? Why would you call it that? Um, yeah, there was no verisimilitude at all. That ship was was designed to it, it, no verisimilitude. I totally agree with you. I didn't believe it either. It's not, although I will say the visual effect of the Enterprise ramming the scimitar, scimitar is cool, but I completely agree with you. Not realistic, no verisimilitude. What a bummer. Um, so I totally agree with you 100%. This letter comes from Jason Bonzel, which I, again, I really like. Um, oh, by the way, just, just check in. It's uh, with one minute and 20 seconds remaining in the third quarter. The Seahawks are down 1913. Baltimore is ahead. Uh, Jason Bonzel says in response to Mark, Sasha and Rob on the moral duty of Facebook, let me first admit that I haven't heard directly what Mark Zuckerberg or Sasha Baron Cohen said, but only your summary is part of the relevant segment in episode 252. That's not usually a recipe for wise and fair responses, but my address is much more to you, Rob, and about your position, which I understand to be the following. Facebook has a moral duty entailed by the moral imperative to do better, to regulate the content of ads displayed on its website based on socio-political ideology. If this is not a fair interpretation of your position, then you can throw this letter in the trash. But after listening to your segment three times, I think I understand you correctly. That's that's fair. You began the segment by assessing Sasha as a huge advocate for free speech and immediately declared your unsurprise at his rebuffing Mark's position. These two sentiments together worry me. One side insists that the ability to advertise remain open to all. The other side is opposed. That the latter position be called the one in support of free speech sounds straight from the mouth of O'Brien in 1984. As you said, you speak off the cuff, so perhaps you didn't mean to phrase things this way, but the Huffington Post title you shared, Sasha Baron Cohen nails Mark Zuckerberg's freedom of discussion defense, seems to agree with me that your support for both free speech and the position of Sasha are mighty tough to square. You asked, Facebook has to owe its customers something, doesn't it? This argument seems to me to beg the question, since it depends on those who those customers are, which depends on who they are allowed to be. 
Let's remember that Facebook's customers are not its users, but its advertisers. Fair point. Facebook owes them exactly what they sell them in their advertising contracts. So if Facebook signs a contract with the folks Sasha would refuse, then I think we agree that Facebook owes its customers something. But you must have meant Facebook owes its users something. That's a different claim to support within the platform being free and unnecessary. But even if it was not free to use, the case is not easy to make. The supporter of unencumbered free markets will say, the company selling poison chicken will go out of business and so does not require government oversight. Well, yeah, but people will have to die first. Similarly, we may want to say that Facebook will suffer financially if it continues to allow content that the market finds obscene and will cease if pressured sufficiently. If not pressured sufficiently, we will have to wonder just how unpopular are these positions. Upwards of 50% of people support them, after all. Bernice King complains that misinformation campaigns hurt the cause of civil rights. But this cause and effect cannot be prevented in a free society in which people disagree, which is to say any free society. Let us not forget, by the way, that the civil rights movement has won to a ter terrific degree, maybe not only uh, despite dissent, but at least in part because of it. The freedom riders' horror springs to mind as a turning off point for many had been opponents. Somewhat similarly, when Pennsylvania was eager to become the first state in the Union by ratifying the new Constitution in 1787, several dissenting legislators were forcibly dragged through the streets to the Capitol to vote against their will, and many detractors' voices were silenced in the newspapers. Much of what these detractors complained of in the proposed Constitution was soon after remedied by the introduction and passage of the Bill of Rights which truly may not exist if the arguments against the Constitution had been silenced as successfully as the Pennsylvania Federalists had wanted. The point is, dissent is needed, and we don't always know why in the moment. The Civil Rights Act may have since been overturned, or the whole thing never even happened, if people had felt strong-armed and kept in the dark about differing opinions. Bernice King also blames misinformation for creating the environment for Martin Luther King's assassination. This is a powerful rhetorical move, but not a sound argument, and one which I think you, Rob, would disagree given your view on art's relationship to violence. What is art? An age-old question with many attempted answers, but we can agree at least that art is a powerful form of language. We will, none of us, I hope, want anyone deciding for us what counts as legitimate information and what, disin what is disinformation. We have seen the fruits of that in 1984 as well. You speak of moral duty and admonish Facebook to do better, but doing better means being the best you can be at what you are. This rule can be found in the ethics of Aristotle's virtue theory, John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism, and Immanuel Kant's duonutology. And while you want to see the best information possible written by the most qualified people from people who are vetting their sources, and that by doing so, we will live better lives, Facebook is not an educational service. It is a place to post cat videos and for people to alienate themselves from their friends. 
I agree that our lives would improve with a heavier dose of those things for which you long for, but in Facebook, you've come to the wrong place. Thanks for reading. P.S. I am the guy that had the longest, longish Twitter exchange with you and John about David Hume and the standard of taste. Oh. Okay, well, first of all, Jason, I want to say that I agree with this letter. I agree with your letter, but I disagree with when you you denigrate Facebook at the end here by saying that Facebook uh, is a place where we're just going to share cat videos or or anything like that. Facebook is has become <clears throat> a place where political ideology is shared, families keep in touch with one another. I mean, it literally has become a a information hub, all kinds of information that the most people on the planet Earth have access to. Uh, and and I think that there is a responsibility to to keep that that free flow of information uh, on the up and up. I, I really I really believe that. And yes, like you point out, advertisers are customers of Facebook and we because they're paying money to Facebook. And we, of course, by strict definition, we of course are are not just customers, we are users of Facebook. And those things are indeed different. But on the other hand, Facebook began without advertising. And I don't necessarily think that if you're a user of something, I mean, if you want to get down to the nitty gritty, somebody is paying for a service. But Facebook was, as Zuckerberg's own words when he was addressing Georgetown University, it was a place where he wanted to bring people together for the exchange of ideas. That's what Facebook exists to do. And I think if that's your idea, you have an obligation to both your users and your customers to provide a place where uh, th this free flow of ideas is something that is going to be beneficial both to advertisers and to users. And look, we the, the Russian, Russian troll farms, it's well documented. They used Facebook, that platform that existed. They exploited Facebook. And like I said, I admired what they did. You know, nobody thought about ever utilizing a, a platform like Facebook this way because it hadn't existed. And it, look, Facebook's getting bigger every day. It's changing every day. And I give it up for all those Russian hackers who were able to exploit the divisiveness. Uh, Miss Rice, uh, you should watch Miss Rice being interviewed by Bill Maher on last night's episode uh, and what she has to say about what went on. And and I think that we we do our, our we owe the rest of our of, of humanity i believe in the free flow of ideas but also if you have uh, basically what amounts to almost a public utility even though facebook is not a publicly held company you know it's just like we want to make sure that our water especially if you live in flint michigan is 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 clean and i and i think that while i do not want i don't believe in censorship i also don't necessarily believe that people should be spewing falsehoods, especially inaccuracies, scientific inaccuracies or, or other kind of inaccuracies, flat earthers, things like that. Should we tolerate as a free society? Should we tolerate factually um, uh, erroneous information uh, as far as free speech is concerned? I don't know. 
I mean, it's 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 beyond my pay grade. I, I, although I do think that your assessment of my thoughts on it were accurate. I don't think you can just say that Facebook is a platform to just share cat videos and things like that. It's more than that. It's become more than that in our civilization around the world. And I do think that there is the public trust has to be a consideration for a company like Facebook. It has to. And uh, otherwise, if if we don't have that, and I'm not saying it has to be subject to government regulation or something, but if we just allow everything willy-nilly, it, it could someone's going to lose their life if they haven't already. And and that isn't a good thing. But again, they're tough questions, and I am not a, a an ethicist. I mean, I'm here to talk about movies and TV and science fiction and horror and fantasy. So it's beyond my pay grade uh, to really address these issues, especially from a a philosophical standpoint or the standpoint of a statesman. But um, from where I'm standing, I would just hope that, look, let's do better. Let's make better things. But I love your letter. I want to thank you for writing in. And uh, again, the, the level of discourse here is only elevated by letters like yours. So thank you, Jason. I very much appreciate it. Very much appreciate it. Um, Let's see who's got the ball. Seahawks have the ball. Second, second on the Seahawks 48. Uh, they're driving. <laughs> Is it illegal for me to report on, I guess? No, I guess it wouldn't be. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble with the NFL. <laughs> Although I can see that happening. It could happen. Uh, one never knows. Uh, here is a letter from Mr. Stubble McShave himself, ladies and gentlemen. Stubble McShave is here with another letter. Hi, Rob. Paul from Long Beach's letter from show number 253 about picking up and trying the first book in the Wheel of Time series because of my enthusiasm for it made me both delighted as well as making me feel a bit worried. Maybe worried isn't the right word. I feel a sense of responsibility for hooking someone into a huge undertaking. With that in mind, I thought it would be prudent to give a sense of what you're to expect if you pick it up and give it a go. First, a short bit about how I came across the series. In the mid-90s, I always forget I have this water. In the mid-90s, I had read a lot of genre literature, such as King, Tolkien, Eddings, and a gazillion other authors. I was 16 or 17 years old, and we had to pick a book in English from our library to read for English class, which is a foreign language to me, as well as give a book report on it. We had about a month on us to do it. And in the library, my eyes were drawn to this thick 800-page book with an interesting cover. Anyway, I read the book, thoroughly enjoyed it, and at the end, sa uh, it said, continue the exciting story in book two. I thought, well, I can't do a book report without knowing how the story ends, so I read book two. And in that, it said the story continued in book three. I read all the way up to book six in two or three weeks, and I realized that the story continued, but there was no more books published as of yet. Instead of doing a book report on the series, I read a crime thriller, which was pretty bad, and did the report on that instead. Later, whenever a new installment came out, I'd reread the series for each book. Then all of a sudden, the author died from a rare blood disease, and I thought I'd never see the end of this story. Fortunately, Robert Jordan made a last dying wish to his wife, who was also his editor. He wanted her to find an author who could finish the series. She found the upcoming author and Wheel of Time fan, Brandon Sanderson, by first reading a eulogy that he'd written after Jordan's passing and then checking out his published work. Without getting into too many details, Brandon was given around 4 million words of notes, finished scenes, and transcripts from dictation taken at the hospital. 
To give a perspective on the matter, 4 million words is the equivalent of around 10,000 pages of text. Anyway, Brandon wrote book 12, 13, and 14, and the fan community was pleased with both the fact that the story got completed as well as the fact that Brandon did a great job in finishing it. Wow, what a great story. I didn't even know that. So to Paul from Long Beach and anyone else who's thinking about picking up the books, what can you expect from the Wheel of Time series? I will try and not spoil anything significant. The most basic concept for the Wheel of Time is that time is circular instead of linear. There are seven ages to the wheel, and each age stretches for thousands of years. It is strongly hinted at that this actually takes place in our world several thousands of years into the future. There can be found obscure references to the space race of the 20th century, Mother Teresa, Queen Elizabeth, and a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia, as well as several other things. These are obscure references, such as a character wanting to hear the story of how uh, Lenin, uh, uh -oh, Len flied to the moon in the belly of an eagle. This is, of course, in reference to John Glenn and the Eagle has Landed. In fact, the references are so obscure that one of the things Jordan wanted to have in his story, information gets twisted and inaccurate the longer distance it is from both time and space. Since time is circular, this also works in the opposite way. Some things that happen as well as some characters that are featured in the story are the basis for several of our myths and legends, just as, just as an obvious example for the Arthurian legend. The characters of Gwyn, Galad, and Ewen Alvir are the basis for the characters Gawain, Galahad, and Guinevere in the Arthurian legend. This doesn't mean that they did the exact same thing. It's an example of how time has twisted the events and names of the story in the Wheel of Time and produced an Arthurian myth that has very little to do with the original elements in the story. There are such examples from many religions and myth, myths from today's world that supposedly have its origins in stories being told in the books. However, these are more Easter eggs than anything else. The central part of this series follows how a character living in obscurity gets tapped on the shoulder being told, you're going to be the savior of mankind. Oh, and by the way, you're probably going to die, and you probably will also get mad and kill all of your friends before you die. If or when you read, what can you expect? You can expect expertly realized characters, some that you'll love and some that you'll hate. You can expect a very detailed world with 20 or so distinct cultures. You can expect top verisimilitude through that infrarob. The first three books are very quest-driven and have an episodic feel. The first half of the book have some similarities to the first half of Fellowship of the Ring. In book four, it really takes off when it comes to bringing in more cultures and expanding the story. It's the favorite book for many people. Books 9 and 10 are considered the worst books in the series. Many of the old fans call this the slog because at this point it was two years between each book's release and the story was so big that it didn't advance very far in each book. So when the story didn't progress that far and had to wait another two years for the continuation, it felt really slow. New readers don't experience that to the same degree because they can just pick up the next installment right away. Book 11 is one of my favorite books and shows Jordan back in form. Unfortunately, he died right after writing it. Brandon subsequently finished the series with books 12 and 14 in good form. The last book contains The Last Battle, which is way bigger than anything we've ever seen in any other fantasy book, movie, or TV production. Them some big words, son. I can, however, in good conscience, not recommend this series to anyone because it's a huge undertaking with 148 unique POV characters, 2,782 named characters, of course, some of them are just a guard at the door or something, but if you listen to it on audio, it'll take you 17 days, 11 hours, and 30 minutes. Wait a minute. For 14 books? Oh, 24 hours a day. 
I can just say that I absolutely love it, but I recognize that it has its problems. Everyone I know who's made it through the series have appreciated it and been glad that they did. It gets better on rereads because that's when you pick up on all the foreshadowing and the things mentioned in the first couple of books that don't play out until much later. Jordan is great in foreshadowing characters, story, and making everything feel real. He lacks a bit in reining himself in with description and the buildup to romances, although this can some degree be explained due to that he writes a very tight third limited and some of the characters are quite dense about such things as romance and don't pick up on it. I hope I didn't ramble too long. Thanks. Stubble McShave. That is, of course, that letter. Stubble, first of all, great letter. I love the fact you 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 love the Wheel of Time series the way I love Star Trek and James Bond. I love anybody who loves anything and can send me in long rambling letters. Actually, this wasn't that rambling. That waps, rap, wax rhapsodic about what you love. So Stubble, once again, thanks for being a great imagination connoisseur and a great participant uh, and a great uh, member of the post-geek singularity community. What would this place be without you, sir? I don't know. Oh, Baltimore Ravens have the ball back. It's getting down there at fourth quarter. 11 minutes left. Come on, Seahawks. Go Hawks. Um, this next letter, this next letter comes from Martin Lawrence. This is a short one. Greetings and salutations, Rob. I'm writing this letter to champion two old series I grew up with that some imagination connoisseurs might not have heard of or be aware of. These being Erie, Indiana, which I really liked, actually, and Jim Henson's The Storyteller, another show that I really liked that you could get on Japanese Laserdisc before you could get on any other home video format here. I can't recommend it. Uh, oh, pardon me. Uh, Erie, Indiana was a little bit Goosebumps, a little bit X-Files, and starring the great Omeri Katz. I can't recommend it enough. The Storyteller was an anthology series with the great John Hurt as the narrator and an incredible dog puppet as his sidekick. Some real adult-themed episodes and awesome puppetry make this a great box set to track down. Anyway, that's my letter. I would love to get your thoughts on these great series. Yours sincerely, Martin Lawrence. I liked Erie, Indiana. I mean, it was a little more, it was a little more youngish for me. And the storyteller I loved. I mean, I thought, you know, the storyteller was made after Dark Crystal, and it was Jim Henson trying to branch out. It's too bad he died when he died because I feel that we would have received, we would have had more, more of that kind of the melding of adult content with his puppetry. And we certainly got that in the new Dark Crystal Age of Resistance series. Uh, I, think, I think Jim Henson would have absolutely loved, loved that series. I think he would have. Uh, another letter from Paul from Long Beach. This is also a quick one. Paul from Long Beach says, on this day, actually, was this sent today? It was. This was sent today. Paul from Long Beach says, on this day in 1985, my God, 34 years ago, the first Blockbuster video store opened. In 1989, four years later, there were 1,000 Blockbuster videos. 1999, there were 6,500 Blockbuster videos. And in 2009, there were 7,400 blockbuster videos. Today, in 2019, there is one blockbuster video. Is that in Alaska or Bend, Oregon? Something like that. I forget. Well, Paul, fascinating. That is fascinating. I, I did not know that. Um, 
But uh, yeah, there you go. Leave it to uh, Paul in Long Beach to send us something that is definitely worth knowing about. Um, yeah. So thank you for that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think we have come to the end of this Observations, the show about something. Observations number 254. If you live on the East Coast, Watchmen has already aired. Here on the West Coast, it airs in two hours if you're watching the East Coast. Oh, no, it wouldn't have aired yet. Uh, it airs at nine, so it hasn't aired yet. So Watchmen is on tonight. Damon Lindelof's sequel to the Watchmen comic book debuts on HBO tonight. I will definitely be talking about it tomorrow. I'm not going to do a review of it right away because I don't really do that. Um, Watchmen's one of my favorite comic series of all time. I I will I will watch this with great trepidation, but I'll give it a fair shot. I, I'm not going to hate watch it yet. I didn't hate watch The Leftovers until I'd gotten into it a few episodes because I'd read the book. Um, look, I want Watchmen to be great. I, I really think it's strange that a sequel to Watchmen would take place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it deals with white supremacy. Uh, <clears throat> interesting way to go, but uh, we shall see. And uh, I want to know what everyone else thinks about the Watchmen series. Um, yeah, who knows? I want to thank all of you, all of you imagination connoisseurs, all of you uh, members of this post-geek singularity community. I want to thank everybody that writes in, supports the channel through Super Chats or signs up on the website, theburnetwork.net. If I may impose on you to hit like for liking these shows or subscribing, that would be great. Keep sending me these great letters. What the letters just keep getting better. I'm, I'm, I can't. The level of discourse on this channel just keeps rising. Um, I've been talking to Jeremy from Geeks and Gamers. Jeremy here uh, with another video. We're talking about getting together, like tomorrow. I don't know if that'll be. It won't be necessarily raw observations, but maybe Jeremy and I from Geeks and Gamers. What would that be like? Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, that should be interesting. Don't know if that's going to happen for sure, but I look forward to that. I want to thank, uh, again, my moderators, Detective Jim. I want to thank Terry, the Sheriff of Nottingham. I want to thank Greg Smith and, of course, the Honorable Mayor Bodden. We're going to have new moderators, I think, soon. That'll be fun as well. So that brings an end to observations number 254. And as always, remember, every person you meet has a story to tell you have yet to hear. All you have to do is listen. And I am still watching this game. Uh, it's first and goal at the Seahawks 7. It looks like the Baltimore Ravens might score again, putting them far away, not even within two touchdowns. Uh, it'd be two touchdowns and at least one two-point conversion if they score, which I think is an inevitability. This is a home game for the Hawks. Anyway, go Hawks. Uh, for you guys, I just want to say thanks for being here and have a better day. <laughs>